to the Momnificent Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them even in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Momnificent Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. Dr. Stasha Gomanak came on my podcast about a year ago. The video of our interview on YouTube has close to 7,000 views today. Here's why. Imagine a world filled with people pain-free from mental illness, anxiety, and depression. Imagine if psychosis was a thing of the past. Medical illness is reduced and medication use is minimized. Dr. Gomanak believes that you can see your doctor once a year and heal your body every night. I love that. The world epidemic of sleep disorders and more is linked to vitamin D deficiency. Dr. Gomanak is here to share with us today three simple steps for healthier sleep. Dr. Gomanak, a huge thank you for joining us, taking your time, your valuable, precious time to speak with us today. Thank you. And I want to thank Dr. Jakubowski for inviting me to her first annual mental health summit. And I'm thrilled that we're talking about this for younger populations. Um, I have a lot to think about and a lot to say about it. We only have 50 minutes today. So I'm going to warn you from the beginning, it's going to go a little briskly. There are many other interviews on my website. So I'm hoping this will lead you to my website as well as this leading to her website so you can learn more. But what I'm going to teach you about is first, how going outside that used to be the way all of us live will lead to better sleep and better mental health. And I'm actually videoing this outdoors on my back porch uh, with that intention in mind now that the weather's getting better. So the first thing to pay attention to is that lousy sleep is actually the new normal. And a lot of you may not know that your kid is not getting normal sleep. It was not always this way, and it absolutely is related to our mental health. And I'm going to try to trace for you what my belief system shows is the link between moving indoors and having increased challenges with mental health. So the depression rates over the last um, 11 years are depicted on this graph, increasing problems with depression and suicide in young people, especially increasing incidence of anxiety. These are only two of the mental health issues. And there are a lot of people who've not been diagnosed with a mental health issue that still don't feel their best. And our definition of what is normal, for instance, anxiety may even can be considered to be a normal piece of being a teenager. As we have more and more of these problems, we consider it to be the new normal. And I really think it's not. So what was different between my episode of growing up in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, different from now? And it's true the world has changed dramatically, but there's some things physiologically that have changed, and those are the things I'm going to talk about today. There are things that you can impact, and they turn out to be about deficiency states. So what's the difference between 1960s and now? We played outside, we did not have air conditioning, it was too hot to be inside during the day, farmers were outside, 
tractors that were not air conditioned, we were exposed to sunlight and various other frequencies of energy that happen when we're outdoors in a very different way. We've not missed that comparison. We've just been handed a, oh, our world is toxic. There's too much electromagnetic energy. And those are things that we can't personally impact as well as things like, am I personally deficient because of this change in behavior? So that's what we're gonna talk about today. There are societal changes that actually started in the 1980s with the dermatologist telling us that sunburn caused skin cancer. But over the last 40 years, it's become more and more and more extreme so that now we're being told that being in the sun is dangerous. And that is not completely true. And in fact, the dermatologists have missed the fact that we have traded a skin cancer at age 75 for an increasing incidence of autism. And I'm gonna show you why that's the case. So sunburn is still not good, but on the other hand, it is not right for our biology to live indoors. And since COVID has come, that's become even more exaggerated. And this summer will be the first time you can actually watch your children as they spend more time outdoors and notice the difference. During the same time span, there's been a really impressive increase in the uh, incidence of sleep disorders. And sleep disorders in children are increasing and they're, they're relatively subtle. So in littler kids before puberty, it's usually they wake tired. And teenagers after puberty, it's usually they have a hard time falling asleep. Those are considered to be the new normal, but they were not always that way. And in people who have normal D and a normal microbiome, there's gonna be the two things we're gonna cover in this lecture. If they have all the raw materials necessary, they will actually sleep depending on their age, Kids sleep from 7 to 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. and wake up and are in a good mood and are ready to go. So if that's not your kid, there may be some things that you might actually be able to investigate and improve. So in a general sense, living outdoors affects both mood and sleep, and we're going to go into actual physiology of that. The other thing I want to point out is because this is a mental health summit, we doctors have put features of illness together. So we've said mental illness carries with it sleep disorders. We've said autism carries a sleep disorder. Sometimes ADD has a sleep disorder. What if we've been picturing it incorrectly all along? What if bad sleep actually produces an inability to make the right neurotransmitters that actually cause the mental illness? It's true that each one of us manifests things that are genetically determined. But every single one of the families who has a genetic thing, not everybody gets it. Not everybody manifests it. So could we then intervene in the sleep by the techniques that I'm going to show you and change the outcome of the mental illness? And why are we wearing those funny masks? So this is to point out sleep apnea actually can happen in children. Some of it is anatomic, and I'm not going to spend any time talking about the anatomy of the oral airway today, but that's an important part for your child. So if you don't know about oral myofunctional therapy, if you don't know about sleep dentists, that's a really important thing for you to investigate. So there's an anatomic part of do we stop breathing or do we have to wake up during the night because the airway isn't right? That is not what I'm covering. I'm going to be covering the chemistry that determines whether or not we wake up all the time. So there are three simple steps that are involved. 
The first is, it's true that the oral airway is important, but when we are unconscious, the brain is paralyzing our oral airway that's depicted in this picture. This is the throat, the tongue, the opening through which we breathe. Here's the nose. The brain is the one that paralyzes this area. Yes, we do get paralyzed. I'm going to talk about that at length. The brain runs the oral airway during sleep. So you can get too paralyzed and have apnea because of the chemistry of your brain. The second piece is vitamin D runs the sleep. And the most surprising is that the bugs that live in your intestine, the bacteria there, actually produce chemicals that play a huge role in our sleep. That means if you don't have the right microbiome, you don't have normal sleep. So low D ruins the sleep and the wrong microbiome ruins the sleep too. And then we can find out ways to have impact on those two things that have gone wrong. So why am I here? I wanna tell you about my journey, how I got here, because it's an important part of why am I a sleep coach now and no longer a neurologist? So what happened to me was I got fascinated with sleep paralysis and sleep and the link to vitamin D. And I'm about to tell you how that happened. So in 2005, I'm practicing a neurologist. I'm a general neurologist. I have half of my practice in headache patients. And one of my patients says, you know, those medicines you've given me for my daily headache have not worked. My husband says I snore like a train and I think I might have sleep apnea. I want a sleep study. She was not overweight. She did not look like what we were told to look for to send sleep studies. She was actually a normal weight person, but she had sleep apnea. She put on a CPAP device, which I personally consider to be some sort of a torture device and her headaches went away. So if she told me she had sleep apnea, I wouldn't have been that interested because I was not really focusing on sleep. And there were no articles about sleep being connected to daily headache, but her headaches went away in three or four weeks. I have many other patients with daily headaches. So I start to do sleep studies on all of them. Now, the confusing part was most of them did not have sleep apnea. So in any case with sleep apnea, I can put back on a CPAP device. But if the ones don't have sleep apnea, then all I'm left with is sleeping pills. And we're all taught that sleeping pills are bad for you. Now, thousands of sleep studies later, I'm noticing that getting the sleep better does help the headaches, but most of my patients do not have sleep apnea. They don't have drops in oxygen. They're not overweight. The report says no significant apnea, but if I can get their sleep better in some way, then their headaches get better. That really suggests that the true problem is the sleep disorder. The beginning problem is the sleep disorder. That means now I'm focusing on the sleep. Also, my pulmonologist finally mentions to me that I may not have noticed this, but the population I'm sending to him is a little different than the usual. They're much younger, they're healthy people. The women are in their thirties and have had a couple of kids. They actually have a pretty consistent finding, which is not unfortunately mentioned on the report which is that they have no rapid eye movement sleep, they have less rapid eye movement sleep, or they have interrupted rapid eye movement sleep. So they have REM-related apnea. They interrupt their sleep several times. And if we do sleep in little blocks, it seems to me that interrupting it might throw a wrench in whatever it is we're doing. So the people that don't have apnea can't use CPAP device. The sleeping pills really don't give back REM. Both the CPAP and the sleeping pills are partial answers. They're really band-aids. And CPAP usually starts to fail by year three or four. So they're still using it, 
but they don't feel as refreshed. That means there's a disease happening in the background that we still haven't gotten to. So now I start to do sleep studies and all sorts of other things like epilepsy and tremor and pain and vertigo and making the sleep better in all of those disorders actually makes the neurologic problem better also. But I'm still stuck with why don't they have any REM sleep? Why is this happening and where is it happening? And if it's happening in the brain, which is where we generate sleep, then it's really my problem. It's a neurology problem and nobody's writing about it. So all around the world, everybody's doing sleep studies now. All of them are abnormal. If you look deep enough in the report, they may not have apnea, they may not have drops in oxygen, but if you look deeper into how much time did they spend in deep sleep and REM sleep, you'll find that around the globe, there is an increasing incidence of, oh, I can't get into the right phases of sleep. And why would that be happening? Like, I don't think it's normal for an eight-year-old to have apnea anyway. And why would he kick in sleep? And these sleeping pills don't affect those leg movements. And what are those leg movements really doing anyway? So I was told by my pulmonologist that when I asked him about what is REM-related apnea, and he says, well, we get the most paralyzed of all in REM sleep. And I went, paralyzed? Do we really get paralyzed? That's really scary. And if we get paralyzed, could those leg movements be insufficient paralysis? And could stopping breathing be too paralyzed? But I was still really freaked out by this idea that we get paralyzed in sleep. And why didn't I know that? And what would that be for? That seems really dangerous. That means if all animals, back to the dinosaurs, get paralyzed in certain phases of sleep, somebody must be supervising that. Who's, who's being sure that we're perfectly paralyzed? Like the airway stays open. We don't collapse this part so that we can't breathe. So in fact, we really are being supervised and that is really, really, really old stuff. The brainstem area that I'm gonna show you is the same in the dinosaurs as it is in us. That means the design of how this paralysis happens has been the same for 500,000 years. We see this when we do a sleep study and it shows us that when the person stops breathing, the first thing that happens is the brain wakes them to <clears throat> a lighter phase of sleep where they're not paralyzed. That means the brain was designed to be supervising this, but it wasn't really designed to be apneic 60 times an hour, to stop breathing 60 times an hour. So this was an, an integral part of the design of sleep, but it's been malfunctioning now in humans around the world for the last 40 years. So there's a specific time frame in which it happened and it's happening around the globe. And it's only happening in humans. You don't see the squirrels outside with CPAP masks on. To give you a brief overview of sleep, sleep is divided into light sleep and deep sleep. Deep sleep at the beginning of the night is also called slow wave sleep. Deep sleep at the end of the night is called rapid eye movement sleep. And we do sleep in little blocks, usually less than an hour. And then we transition into light sleep. If you picture what it's like to be paralyzed when you're sleeping under a tree, you're extremely vulnerable. Other animals can jump on you and eat you. So in between these deeper blocks where we're apparently getting paralyzed to heal. So we can't really grow our legs while we're running across a basketball court. 
The fact that we're paralyzed in sleep suggests that sleeping is for growing. And in fact, growth hormone is only released in slow wave sleep in children. That means if your child does not have a normal amount of slow wave sleep in their sleep, they do not grow normally. It also implies that their brain development is also not normal. So if you short the, shorten the sleep, you will actually shorten the period of time that your child has to make all the neurochemicals that make us happy and content. And we make our memories in deep sleep. That means if we shorten these phases, we do not learn as well. So where is this happening? And I start to read these nerdy science articles about the biochemistry of where is this happening? Because that's all I have. And the sleep switches are a set of switches that are in the brain stem. This is the part where the brain becomes the spinal cord. And it has two major functions. One of them is to transition us between these phase, phases. And the other is a clock function. So our brain is actually entrained or linked to our 24 hour planetary cycle. So we usually sleep for eight hours and we're awake for 16 hours. Those functions are involuntary. They are not you saying, oh, I wanna to go to sleep. During sleep, we are actually run by our brain. That means if your child can't fall asleep until 1 a.m., something is chemically wrong with him or her. That is not a voluntary thing. So two paralyzed can be pictured as apnea or stopping breathing or this part collapses. When the legs are too paralyzed, nothing wrong happens. You're just legs are paralyzed the way they're supposed to be. But if this gets too paralyzed, you can collapse your airway and stop breathing. So it's a way of looking at how this center in the brainstem may be affecting, if it went wrong, it could affect the timing of the sleep and the paralysis. So now when I'm looking at someone's sleep study, I'm saying, oh, there are two possible places this could happen. This could be an oral airway problem with the anatomy of the jaw, or it could be in the brainstem. Now, that's interesting, but I don't have anything to do with that until this happens. So five years into this, I have a young gal who's 18, perfectly beautiful. There's nothing else wrong with her. She has daily headache. She's about to start college. Her headaches are better with the medicine I gave her. But she comes back and she says, gosh, I'm so tired. I'm glad my headaches are better, but I feel so lousy. She sleeps 10 hours a night. And in front of me, I have her sleep study. And her sleep study shows her sleeping for 10 solid hours. If you ask her, there's nothing wrong with her sleep. But she has zero deep sleep. She tries several times an hour. So every time she tries to get into deep sleep, it doesn't work and she comes back out into light sleep. She doesn't stop breathing. She doesn't have drops in oxygen. She just is not able in some way to complete these deeper phases of sleep. Because that was so abnormal and she said, oh, I'm so tired. I said, well, I, I don't usually treat that, but let's do some thyroid and some B12. And her B12 was extremely low, low enough that I even alerted to it. Now, keep in mind that even though I knew about vitamins before medical school, I was actually trained away from them. And I wouldn't have usually been thinking that a vitamin deficiency state would be related to a sleep disorder, except that I've been thinking about these sleep switches and maintaining paralysis as a single cell. I've been getting into the actual core of how could this happen? So for the first time, I'm really thinking about sleep on a single cell level. And I think, wow, what if these cells that are supposed to be keeping us paralyzed are B12 deficient and they can't do their job? Like, What if this were a deficiency state and we could fix it? 
That was like mind boggling. So I start doing B12 levels and all these people who I've done sleep studies on. And one of my patients mentions vitamin D. I'm not the least bit interested. I know nothing about it, but I'm doing blood draws anyway. So I throw in the vitamin D and for four months, be at the end of the summer. So the D should theoretically, if it's made from the sun, be at its highest. For four months, I'm doing B12 and D with everybody with an abnormal sleep study. And the D is the one consistent thing. Every single D is low. And this is at the end of the summer. This is in the fall when it should be the highest. The B12 was there some of the time and the really sick people. So it's playing a role, but only in some. And then there's this pivotal experience. It's a clinical report from two of my guys who are wearing CPAP devices and they both come in in the same week, like a few days apart from each other and say, you know, you told me the CPAP would make my headaches better, but it never did. But you sent me that note about taking some vitamin D and within about three weeks, that vitamin D made my sleep better, my headaches went away. So two guys tell me that in one week. And I think, you know, every single vitamin D that I measured was low. And what could vitamin D have to do with sleep? So that leads me to a literature search in PubMed. And the first set of searches, sleep and vitamin D, has no hits, which is important because there weren't any reports at the time. But the brain and vitamin D gets me into this material by Walter Stump. And Walter Stump has actually looked at the sleep, sleep nuclei that I've been looking at that no one else even pays any attention to or writes about. And he's shown that this nucleus pontus oralis caudalis in the brainstem that runs the paralysis and sleep has vitamin D receptors. That means vitamin D is playing a role in our ability to transition in and out of sleep, the timing of sleep and paralysis and sleep, which I was totally blown away by this because all of my patients that have these problems have low vitamin Ds. He has also written a system of thinking about D that's very different than what we're being taught. Vitamin D is still being considered a vitamin, a bone vitamin. It is not a vitamin. It was never a vitamin. It is not a nutrient and it is not in food. It is a hormone that we make on our skin. So if I were to say to you, doctor, I think, you know, I think that your problem with your sleep or your problem with these other diseases are because of thyroid. And why don't you just go down to the corner pharmacy, buy some thyroid and then come back and see me in a year. Most people would know immediately, wait, thyroid, aren't you supposed to do my blood test? And aren't you supposed to give me a dose and then see if my blood level is okay? We've named D a vitamin and therefore we've treated it like a vitamin, but it's never been a vitamin. It is only made on our skin exposure to sun. So for instance, if someone tells you on the internet that salmon is a good source for vitamin D. There might be vitamin D in that salmon, but it's kind of like saying there's also testosterone in that salmon. And that's because it was a male salmon and male salmons also have testosterone. But does that mean that that's where your testosterone come from? No. Our vitamin D is a hormone. It's really hormone D and it's meant to be in a specific little narrow band of a blood level all the time. Now, if you live at the equator, the vitamin D amount that you make every single day is related to how much you're outside and it stays the same all year. But if you move away from the equator, you move into areas on the planet that have winter and summer. And Walter has already put together a conceptual framework that says, well, we would survive better if we could actually 
One, not have our babies at a time when there's no sun, like right at the beginning of the winter, because if there's no sun, there's no food. That means it affects our fertility, our metabolism. Like why do bears gain weight so they can lay in the ground for six months so they can make it through the winter? So it's related to our fertility, our metabolism, and our sleep. That means every animal that lives in a winter hard area has to either migrate or hibernate. We can't move to the equator, or at least in the past we couldn't. Now we can fly to Mexico, but in the past we had to hibernate. That means the effects of this chemical going low are really like being in permanent winter. And we get fat and we get to a place where our D is so low that we don't even remember how to sleep. So our sleep is actually linked to two separate clocks. One is the 24 hour clock that we know is the circadian rhythm. It is actually linked to a vitamin, vitamin A. Light going through the eye, through the retina, links our system through the brain to the 24 hour clock. That means being outdoors and having sun in your eyes actually makes your sleep better. The annual clock is the clock that we missed because we called it vitamin D and we ignored the fact that it was a hormone linking us to the annual 365 day cycle. We've missed the fact that as all of us have a low D now, as we moved inside, we're actually not able to sleep in a normal way. Here's a really sad story. 100 years ago, November of 1921, Alfred Hess is presenting to the Pediatric Society in New York City that they have cured rickets by putting children, infants, and toddlers out in the sun. Unfortunately, he, he titles this The Prevention and Cure of Rickets by Sunlight. But the first, first sentence says, rickets is the commonest nutritional disorder occurring among infants. We have called rickets a bone disease, but it's not a bone disease. Rickets was a disorder of failure to thrive, colicky babies, babies that didn't eat, babies that cried all the time, babies that had rotting teeth. Those features are being seen comically, commonly now but are not being called rickets because we applied the x-ray findings. So you can have mild rickets without obvious bone disease and the doctors are not being trained to look for the bone features. That means rickets is all around us in a milder form as colicky babies that don't sleep, that won't eat, that can't take breast milk, that aren't growing normally, that have a protuberant bad belly that's constantly looking bloated. So one, our description of rickets is, is wrong and focusing on just the part that doctors could talk about with x-rays. But the second piece was 100 years ago, it was shown that exposing your child to sunlight was the appropriate cure. Despite that, it's still called a nutrient. We labeled it a vitamin and medicine will not let go of that. So he showed that all the features, including difficulty eating and being cranky and not sleeping, got better with sun exposure. And then the dermatologist took over and told us that sun exposure was bad. The second piece of the history that's really important is 20 years later in the 1940s, because medicine was so convinced that this was in the food, despite many studies showing it was from the sun, found a precursor to the D that we make. They found D2 
in the mold that was growing on the rat's food. So we're studying this in rats because we don't like them, but rats are nocturnal animals. That's why we don't like them. They come into our house and they scurry around and they scare us. So rats are able to exist without sunlight because their vitamin D receptors can use this very old chemical called D2. And D2 was the first one to be described. And it wasn't until 10 years later that D3, which is what we humans and all other animals on the planet, all the way back to insects, fish, birds, mammals, we all make D3 on our skin exposure to sun. D3 is not the same as D2. D2 is only made in yeast and fungus. And D2 has made my clients sleep worse. That means it's similar, but it's not the same. It's okay for rats, but it's not okay for humans. So as soon as D3 came on the scene, unfortunately, we should have used only D3, but D2 was already being made by pharmaceutical industries and was in other ways to get it from the food. So we still focused on this as being a nutrient, despite the fact that it's really about putting your kid outdoors. So Walter Stunt wrote multiple articles about the, pre the events that were going to happen. So when Walter's writing these articles, the vitamin D deficiency epidemic hasn't really started yet, or at least we haven't recognized it yet. So he's writing light vitamin D in psychiatry in 1989, the role of vitamin D in etiology and therapy of seasonal affective disorder and other mental processes. He's writing about vitamin D light and reproduction. He's He's actually predicting that we're going to have problems with fertility because our Ds are low. And that's what's happening. Vitamin D in the sites of action of the spinal cord and sensory ganglia. He's prefacing what's going to happen, which is five years before I got into this stuff, MS is related to vitamin D deficiency. So he's writing all these articles, 125 diadroxy vitamin D3 in teeth of rats and humans. So Early dental decay and periodontal diseases related to vitamin D deficiency. These are all articles that are in the literature in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s, but are being ignored because medicine is so slow to change its idea. And it's stuck with this idea that vitamin D is a nutrient and it's only about bone. So if we find vitamin D receptors in the area of the brain that does paralysis, we can also find that it's actually sorted according to the anatomy. That means sometimes we can paralyze this part, the neck, sometimes the chest wall and diaphragm to repair it, and then everything else. That means a lot of the diseases that we found like sudden infant death syndrome can be about that child getting paralyzed in deep sleep a little too much and a little too long. So they don't breathe and they die in sleep. That gives us another way to impact these diseases. So also there are vitamin D receptors in other parts of the brain that do the timing of sleep. That means really in the normal state, when RD got into the low forties, we would sleep longer. At the end of the summer, we would sleep a shorter amount of time. And it was normal for the D to go up and down in people who live away from the equator. Now, the next question was, oh, there's all this incredible literature that suggests that if you have a low D, you could have a sleep disorder. My next question is, is there a vitamin D blood level, not a dose, but a blood level that will produce better sleep? And over a two-year period, 
I was there with my patients getting vitamin D levels, giving them D, finding out about D, vitamin D dosing and deficiency, and actually did find that there was a blood level that led to better sleep. Keep in mind that this is not an ideal human blood level. This is a blood level in people who are really screwed up because they've been D deficient for a long time. We're gonna talk a little bit in the next section about what happens when you've had a D below 40 for a long time. Many things have happened to them and they may actually have to go to a higher level to fix that deficiency state and make the sleep better. But better sleep really results from a D level between 60 and 80. Now, the next part about this lecture that's very important is most of you that are watching this already know about vitamin D because we just lived through two or three years of COVID and everybody's starting to take vitamin D. The most important part of this lecture is not the vitamin D segment. The most important part is if you take vitamin D and you do not bring back your normal microbiome and it's not through probiotics, you will get sicker in the future because vitamin D by itself requires other things next to it and they come from the microbiome. So the next part is even more important. Here are the things that didn't get better with D. So one, the IBS symptoms did not get better. Walter has a bunch of articles about how D is involved in our metabolism and therefore our GI tract. So I thought that those of us who knew that the microbiome wasn't right, well, we'll just get better. The bugs will come back. The bugs went away. The bad bugs have replaced them because the D went low. But the important piece to know is vitamin D by itself did not bring back the microbiome. So the IBS continued also. At the end of two years, many of my patients were having more and more pain of various kinds that I couldn't explain. It was the end of two years. It wasn't directly from D. It was from something else. It took two years to develop and they didn't lose weight. That was another thing that supported the fact that the microbiome had not come back to normal because the summer microbiome, the microbiome that's there that helps you to apply your calories to your muscles instead of putting your calories into fat, that summer microbiome had not been reinstated. So this is a big disaster for me. So also at the end of two years, the positive effect on sleep began to fail. So I'm seeing that my patients who were sleeping better a year ago are now sleeping worse. And they're starting to tell me new things, including two women with burning pain in their hands and feet, which has a real B vitamin ring to it, but they're already on B12. I do not have enough time to tell you the actual incidents of what happened, but in brief, one of my patients brought me a book about a B vitamin called pantothenic acid. There are uh, really good articles from the 1950s that describe that if you're pantothenic acid deficient, you can't sleep, your belly hurts, and you can get burning in your hands and feet. So that was the basis for actually learning about the B vitamins and starting a B vitamin replacement. And the most important piece of this lecture is the B vitamins do not come from the food. The B vitamins only come from the bacterial population that lives inside of us. So there are multiple other articles that have documented that the B vitamins each have a bug, microbacteria, back, um, bug source, as well as a food source. But in actual fact, many of the B vitamins only come from the bacteria that live inside you. So how could I have produced something new after two years? It looks like the D is making the sleep better. The sleep is then making more repairs, 
But those repairs, every single repair in the cell is linked to a B vitamin in some way. The B vitamins are necessary to make proteins, to make RNA, to make DNA, all of the things that we want to be able to grow and develop and have a good brain and have a healthy body are linked to the B vitamins. And it turns out that these patients have not changed their diet. And that I have also witnessed that their, their bugs in their belly probably are no better. Then I began to have a theory that, oh, what we need to do is get these B vitamins down into the belly because they are bacterial growth factors. So what do we know about these, this microbiome? The first important thing to know is just dumping bacteria down your belly, like swallowing probiotics is not the answer. The foursome that we need have little representatives down there, but they are no longer the dominant foursome to supply us with everything we need because they all need D. So when the D has been low, the bacteria change, when the bacteria want to come back, they need two things. They need D and they need the B vitamins that they usually make. So the information that we have is normal babies born to moms that live outside that have enough D in their breast milk because they're outside living women are colonized spontaneously by this foursome. We don't, we've never given our babies probiotics you actually just pick up the bacteria that's all around you and you favor the bacteria that like vitamin D if there's enough vitamin D to keep them living. The reason why there's a foursome is they have always been supplying each other with these B vitamins. And in fact, B vitamins were first described as bacterial growth factors. If you never thought about this before, we have vitamin A and then we have eight things called B and then we have C and then we have DE. Well, why are there eight things called B? And it's because the foursome of bacteria actually make eight different chemicals and they make those in a foursome colony where they're trading these bees. So they were originally described as things that bacteria needed to grow in a Petri dish. Now, it turns out that that means we're actually symbiotic with our bacteria. We provide the D that they need. They provide the Bs that we need. Now, once we go D low for months on end, or if we are born to a D deficient mom and her breast milk doesn't have enough D and he's not outside, then there is not enough D being supplied to those bacteria for the baby to establish the healthy microbiome at the beginning of his or her life. The bad bacteria don't supply these bees. And also the microbiome appears to be pivotal in absorbing lots of the small charge ions that we call minerals like copper, zinc, iodine, iron. So many of the other deficiencies that are described in modern children are not about their diet. They're about having the wrong bugs that were always helping us absorb these small charged ions. So the most important part of this lecture is there's a way to bring back the microbiome. And once you're on D, you need to do this step or in a couple of years, you'll start to be low in the B vitamins because your microbiome is not producing them and bad things will happen. The probiotics are not the answer. Prebiotics are another thing, but probiotics, just dumping the bacteria down there, that's not the answer. The answer is for three months, you get your D above 40 and you give your belly all eight Bs. This is a pretty complicated idea set. So I have a workbook on my website that shows you how to do this. 
And I actually have videos that show you how to do this with children. And in a minute, we're gonna talk about the diseases that result when these Bs and D go low. And all of a sudden it's gonna seem relevant to you. And I want you to know that there's a workbook that takes you through as your own private assistant through the path of making this happen. So you need both D plus the Bs. And then once you've done that for three months, you continue the D. If it's winter, you go outside if it's summer and you stop the bees because you've brought back the normal source of the bees. The bugs were always the normal source. There are eight chemicals that actually are intersecting all over the body. That means we're not really meant to stay on supplements long-term. And if we're able to live outdoors and get our D fully from the sun, that is actually a healthier approach. So three months of D plus bees equal healthy bugs, and then you stop the bees. So it's the intestinal environment, the supply of these chemicals needed for the healthy bacteria, not just dumping the bacteria down them. So the ideas that have to do with my diet affects who lives inside me is absolutely true. That is not wrong. So diet is an important player. It's just not the whole answer to this problem with chronic D deficiency. So the next piece is that we've actually, for the first time in 2020, so when I published uh, my article in 2016 saying that D deficiency resulted in B vitamin deficiencies because D is a cofactor to bacteria, I had no science to back that up. It wasn't until 2020 that we have a human study that actually shows that it changes the intestinal microbiome based on the amount of vitamin D that's being supplied. So I published an article that shows that there is a link between having low D and this profound deficiency in not just bees, but also uh, other uh, things such as minerals, and that that deficiency state has a huge impact on how we're doing both in development in children and in adults. And now I'm going to go through the actual chemistry of what it makes happen in your child, not just a sleep disorder, but lots of other things like autism and ADD and difficulties with vaccination. So this is a very important chemical. If you don't recognize it, you're not alone. Nobody's talking about acetylcholine. It's pronounced acetylcholine or acetylcholine. And it is a really important neurochemical. It's a neurotransmitter, but it also plays a big role in inflammation. And I'm gonna go through how you can become deficient in this neurotransmitter by having a low D in the wrong microbiome. So I'm gonna show you some science here. I don't expect you to remember it, but I want you to show, I want you to know that there is a specific scientific background to the diseases I'm gonna show you. So the D receptor, when it hits its receptor in that stripe of neurons that I showed you in the brainstem, that D activations expresses this enzyme, choline acetyltransferase. That is the final enzyme in the step that makes acetylcholine. What does acetylcholine do? Great question, I'm gonna show you that. But does this enzyme need two raw materials? Yes, it needs choline that comes from our diet, but it also needs acetyl-CoA. And acetyl-CoA is actually made by B5. So in order to make acetyl-CoA, you have to have B5. That means that you want a normal microbiome to produce this B5, that allows you to make this, enz this enzyme, the D makes the enzyme, the acetyl-CoA is necessary to be acted on by the enzyme to make acetyl acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter 
that does all sorts of things. So the microbiome plus D is actually the normal state of a normal acetylcholine level. Now, if you just type in, what does acetylcholine do in the brain? What you get out of these textbooks about animal studies in sleep is that acetylcholine determines your level of alertness, your ability to focus during the day, i.e., could this be low in ADD, ADHD? Yes. And could this be why there was an epidemic of sleep disorders, sleep apnea, and ADHD all developing at the same time? Yes. Acetylcholine determines your level of alertness during the day and your sleep at night. And your ability to, co to concentrate is determined by your frontal lobe's level of acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is also a major player in the neurotransmitters that run paralysis and sleep. So this is a diagram of the neurotransmitters we need to get normally paralyzed in sleep. At the same time frame, we've all been told that we're in sympathetic overdrive. Well, acetylcholine is the parasympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is made up of flight, fight, flight, which is epinephrine, norepinephrine, and rest and digest, which is acetylcholine run. That means if you run out of the juice that makes this neurotransmitter, you can be in fight flight all the time because you are deficient in a neurotransmitter. What does the parasympathetic do? It slows the heart rate, it decreases the blood pressure, it reduces anxiety. This is playing a role in that feeling of being anxious. And I'm actually giving back B vitamins and watching people's anxiety go away in this really freaky way. That's from a neurology standpoint is totally unexpected. The idea that you can have a deficiency state in a neurotransmitter is a totally new idea, but this is actually what's happening. So when you don't have the parasympathetic side being active enough and you're meditating and you're doing breathing exercises and you're doing things that help turn up the parasympathetic nervous system, because we know all of those things that we've tried to make us feel calmer are really turning up the parasympathetic side. If you don't actually have the neurotransmitter, eventually you're just gonna deplete your supply and you will feel bad because you'll be in sympathetic overdrive. So this is another way to look at all the other ways we're being taught that we're in sympathetic overdrive and it gives us something we can do. We can fix this deficiency state. It's not that the meditation or the breathing exercises are not right. They're all we've had but there are other ways to intervene now. Here are the acetylcholine deficiency disorders that are being scientifically documented. And I'm gonna show you some of the articles, but all you have to do is go to PubMed or to Google and say, uh, cholinergic deficiency disorders, ADD, ADHD, autism, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, autoimmune diseases, hyperinflammatory states, sleep disorders. Now I'm gonna show you some of the references, but there are many others because I only have a limited period of time. This is an article about the frontal lobes and what is the neurotransmitter that they use. And he's describing in this article that it is a deficiency of stimulation of the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Well, why is nicotine in here? Because there are no drugs that mimic acetylcholine except for nicotine. We vilified nicotine, we've said it's bad for us, but actually it was one of the few drugs we had in early phases of pharmacology and neuroanatomy. So we actually learned that the acetylcholine receptors in the frontal lobes were stimulated by nicotine. Now, does that mean 
then I'm going to tell you if your kid has ADD, you should give him a cigarette to smoke at recess. No, but that means your kid really would do better with a natural source instead of um, Adderall, which is actually increasing the uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine side. This particular author comes to its conclusion and says, you know, we really shouldn't be giving these amphetamine-like drugs. They're about upping the epinephrine, norepinephrine. And this is an acetylcholine deficiency state. Now, I don't want to convince you to give nicotine, but I'm going to show you studies where they use nicotine to help this, both in, in animal models and in humans. Parkinson's disease is a disease of the old, but it turns out there's an acetylcholine deficiency preamble before they become dopamine deficient. Autism is also being explored from the point of view as a nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. So this is... This article is modulation of social deficits and repetitive behaviors in a mouse model of autism. They now have mouse models of autism. And the fact that nicotinic cholinergic system is heavily involved. It's not the only one that's involved. And I'm going to tell you about endocannabinoids now. They're also using transdermal nicotine to treat aggression and irritability in adults with uh, autism spectrum disorder. Now, one of the most important parts for the current state of COVID and COVID immunization is about this part of acetylcholine, which turns out to be only partially related to the brain. So this is an article about finding out that there is an inflammatory pathway that uses acetylcholine, but it's actually not related to the nervous system per se. And the diagram is a little simpler to understand. They found out that stimulating the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is this big nerve that runs all sorts of things like heart rate, respiration, all that. When you stimulate it artificially, it releases T cells, so white blood cells, and those white blood cells go out into the tissues and they release choline acetyltransferase. That same enzyme that I showed you that made acetylcholine in the brain is actually acting like a hormone here. It's not being released by nerve cells. It's being released by white blood cells. And it adjusts minute to minute what our inflammatory response is to various stimuli. So every single kid with ADD also may have in parallel a problem with inflammatory disorders that may look at different ways in different kids like asthma, allergy, mast cell disorder, peanut allergy. So now we're gonna swing back around and show how this has played a role in childhood development. All of these disorders have increasing incidence in childhood in the last 40 years, ADD, autism, autoimmune disorders that are supposed to be happening in midlife or late life or now moved up into the very first year of life. Allergy, asthma, gluten sensitivity, Humans have raised wheat and wheat-like grains for thousands of years, and the gluten sensitivity is a relative recent problem. Sleep disorders, delayed abnormal facial and jaw development because they're spending their nights breathing through their mouth because their nose is congested. Chronic illnesses, mood disorders, which is as huge a problem in children as asthma and allergy, so here are some of the articles that talk about why kids can have a, a congested nose that keeps them from being able to keep their mouth closed while they're sleeping, which plays a huge role 
and the actual anatomic size and development of the mouth and then the airway. And then this is a piece that you may not know about that's also extremely important. There's one article that was <clears throat> published in 2020 by Francesca Guida. This shows that the building blocks to make the endocannabinoid system. So if you haven't heard about this, our nervous system makes its own cannabinoids. We call it that because it came from the cannabis plant, but in actual fact, we don't need it from the plant if we have the raw materials necessary to make our own endocannabinoids. So these chemicals play a role in our brain development and our nervous system development, both during early development and later they play a role in mood. So the bugs that grow in our belly actually provide the raw materials to make the endocannabinoids. That means if you have the wrong microbiome, not only are you deficient in the B vitamins, but you are deficient in the endocannabinoids. This is a very complex system that's too complex for us to go into it today, but I want you to remember that word and start to learn about it. This is a diagram showing you that we have cannabinoid receptors. So the effects of cannabinoids have to do with appetite, mood, sleep, calmness. These are being used as pharmaceuticals, but they're only working as pharmaceuticals because our nervous system was supposed to have them. And if we don't have the raw materials coming from our gut, then we can be endocannabinoid deficient, okay? Now we also have all sorts of studies that show that the basic science of brain development in utero are related to having a normal cannabinoid system. This means that if mom doesn't have the raw materials from her microbiome to provide the building blocks for the baby to make endocannabinoids, then the baby's neuronal development is not normal. This is another article about sleep through development in both sexes. So sleep in utero before the baby is even born is linked to what the endocannabinoid system is doing. In normal fetuses, they start to have a sleep-wake cycle at 30 weeks. That means in another 10 weeks when they're, when they're um, delivered at 40 weeks, they should already have a day-night circadian rhythm that follows moms. This is not the case for most of our babies right now. Endocannabinoids are also being explored in autism. And it turns out that not only some of the features that autistic kids have in their sensory nervous system where their clothing feels uncomfortable to them, that is something that's directly linked to the nervous system perception of pain. So that soft moving touch is supposed to be perceived as pleasant, but if your endocannabinoids are not right, it's perceived as unpleasant. And autism spectrum disorder is called that because it's not a disease per se. It's a collection of physical things that we've noticed, but they're all tracing back to sleep disorder, belly problems, and all of these kids have sleep disorders and the wrong microbiome. This description does not mean we can magically fix autism with vitamins. It means that autism needs to be fixed by normal sleep. And getting to normal sleep involves following these steps that have to do with the B vitamins and the, and the microbiome and D. That means potentially autism could be reversible. There are also articles, a lot of articles being published about endocannabinoids and psychiatry in adults. Now that we're 
interested in endocannabinoids, they're measuring that the endocannabinoid system is screwed up in, in a much bigger way in people who commit suicide. So it's very likely that mood disorders are also linked to the state of the endocannabinoids in adults. Because we've just been through COVID and because COVID immunization is such a hot topic, it's important to realize that COVID is the virus that we actually become infected by. But the illness or dying is about what the immune system does in reaction to that COVID virus. So in children, what we're seeing is they had less of an illness when exposed, but in the years following, they, if they don't have a nor normal microbiome, their incidence of autoimmunity goes up. So that means we can actually have a way to intervene on what our child's inflammatory responses to both the immunization and COVID by following this path of getting their D back up, getting their microbiome back. And we would really like to prevent this in all children by having mom's level be 50 to 60 when she's pregnant so that baby's environment is perfect, that mom's microbiome is normal. She has the four foursome of bacteria that provide the baby, the B vitamins, that help in fetal development, and that mom is able to supply D to baby through breast milk once the baby is delivered. This means that prevention is possible. So now drawing it all together, I wanna to show you that diseases we all used to call old people diseases that we thought are a normal part of getting old are really moving up into childhood. We can look at it that way and realize that if we, if we prevent these illnesses, then we don't have to do a long um, treatment to fix the diseases that are present. So to put it all together, all animals on this planet make D on their skin from the sun. If they're nocturnal animals like an owl, when they eat the mouse, that mouse's liver has the D that that mouse made from being out in the sun. So you have to have a way to get vitamin D. Most of the time, we are not eating raw liver. So we have to make it from the sun. Every decade as we get older, our production of vitamin D from the same amount of sun exposure gets less. So in prior generations, when we lived outdoors, there really was a maximal age limit for humans in the setting of medicine has actually killed the, most of the infectious diseases. We're not in a time of starvation or war. People can live to be hundred years old but they don't live forever. So around age 75, the D production starts to go down. They start to get a sleep disorder. Then they start to get the medical problems that are associated with that, like hypertension, high cholesterol. Then they take medicine for a brief period of time and die of something that's related to poor sleep and poor repair. So unfortunately, our kids are aging much faster. So these are the things that used to be old people diseases. If you live long enough into your 70s, we all have a sleep disorder by the time we get old. We either sleep during the day inappropriately or we can't sleep at night. Our teeth fall out, rheumatism, funny walking, falling down, constipation, memory loss, heart diseases, organ failures, toenail function, fungus. These are all moving into much, much younger populations, into little kids now. That means we should picture them as, what? My kid is aging faster. And every child who has abnormal sleep is actually losing out on both their development, their growth, 
and their ability to repair. So how can we prevent this? How can we treat it once it's happened? Remember the three steps. The brain runs the oral airway during sleep. So if your kid actually has apnea, one, the anatomy of the airway should be explored, but two, that can also be on a chemical basis. Two, low D ruins the sleep. The B needs to come up. But most importantly, when the D comes up, you need more Bs. The Bs come from the intestinal bacteria. That means you need to bring the microbiome back in the right way. This is admittedly a complicated pattern. This is not something that you can just, I'm gonna take some vitamins and my kid's gonna be okay, especially for this child that's the most valuable thing you've ever had in your life. You wanna do it right. That means you really want to come to my website. You want to look for the workbook. The workbook tells you how to do this. If your child is five, you want to get the video that's about how to do this program correctly in little kids. And if there's nothing wrong with your kid and your kid sleeps great and they're a perfect example of waking up happy every morning, you do not give them these vitamins because they are actually functioning in a normal state. So I have clients who try to give a multivitamin to their kid who's sleeping perfectly and runs around naked all summer and their sleep gets interrupted right away, okay? Vitamins are not for an ideal human. The ideal human has everything they need inside them. That's a wonderful thing. But the ideal human has actually lived outdoors like every other human being. Being outside is still the best way to do these programs. Being outside leads to all sorts of healthful results that have nothing to do with UVB light, that have to do with infrared light and other wavelengths that we're just starting to study that we didn't even know about. So being outdoors, exercising and doing things outdoors is still the final most important message. And I'm gonna stop with that and ask if we have any questions. That was Awesome, Dr. Gomenak, thank you so much. I'm checking the chat now. I don't see anything at the moment, um, but you can, um, I think, stop the screen share. You see that sure. button there? And I remember when you and I spoke uh, about a year ago, you were talking about how bedwetting isn't normal. And that was like surprising to me because how many people know, like, if your kid wets the bed, like your body should have the function to be able to hold, hold it in all night long. Um, I remember that was a big one that um, yeah, when you had said that. It's really like, interesting really? to me that it's not completely, um, right sleep is not the only answer for bedwetting. I really feel like there are other genetic things. And the reason why I mentioned that is that I had a couple of people who I was treating for other things like daily headache or epilepsy. And they came back and said, you know what? The bedwetting went away. Um, but I've also had several clients where I've tried to do it with right sleep alone and I have not been successful. That means to me that there are other aspects that there's still about sleep. It's still a sleep disorder, but some of the medicines that we're using, um, like amipramine, have to do with firing rates of certain neurons. So I think it's still a neurochemical problem. I still think the right sleep needs to be done, but it still may require other interventions um, in some kids where we don't get the full effect. And I, the reason why I want to mention things like that is that if we address the bedwetting, but we don't recognize that it's a sleep disorder, then we miss, oh, well, if he has a sleep disorder, could that be why he's not growing? If he has a sleep disorder, could that be why he's depressed? If we still treat the sleep disorder, so we have all these array of things that we as doctors are trained to intervene with a certain chemical, 
But if we do that, we're treating it with a Band-Aid for that symptom. Instead of looking at the bigger picture, could I get a better outcome with my kid if I treated the sleep disorder and the bedwetting? Yeah. And what is the craziest thing that you are seeing happen in the last like month or two? Like what's, what's the most recent story that you're like, oh my gosh, this happened? That's a great question. My business coach who's in her 30s who's had a very rough time with this right sleep. It's been a very long process and it's been very difficult. And she had this awful disease in her 20s where her arms started to burn and be awfully painful. She went all around to all these doctors. Nobody could answer it. They finally told her she was crazy. And then she went to a naturopath who actually gave her some D and some B100. She doesn't link it to that, but that's what most of the naturopaths start with. So she got better. She saw it as a food elimination because she did that too. And then she started doing right sleep and right in the middle of right sleep, right when you have to turn the bees up, her burning started again. So I felt guilty because her disease came back, but it turns out that right sleep is pretty complicated. And anybody who's had a disease, it shows up again in, in the six month mark. So ultimately what we talked about this week was she is now so much better that she said, this is the first time in my life that I've ever been this emotionally calm. My husband mentioned to me that he hasn't seen me cry for a whole month. And she said, like, I was kind of aware that I felt perky and happy and capable every day, but I hadn't really thought about the fact that he was used to seeing me cry once a week. I like, I would cry at a drop of hat. That's the way I have always been. And she said, I don't think that all the emotional upset that I had with my dad when I was a teenager and early 20s would have affected me as deeply had I been in this state then. So really, over the last 40 years, the last three generations haven't had a normal microbiome and had the right or normal neurochemistry since the beginning. At least 50% of the population is probably that way. That means you really don't the hard part about this is, as a, as a parent, each one of us loves our ch unique child, okay? And we don't know, and we're really being trained to accept every little quirk of every little kid. We're really being trained away from the desire to say, normal kids do the following. So redefining what's normal is kind of tough, okay? You have to look back and really go into, well, was it normal to stay awake until 1 a.m. in my high school? No. What was the incidence of suicide? What was the incidence of feeling like you wanted to change sexes? What was the incidence of X, Y, Z? We actually have all these things that are happening while we're sleeping, okay? We're born with genitalia that it's, it's fixed by X, Y. But the sexualization of the brain happens every night. And it happens in utero and it happens during the first year of life. That means there are so many things that are happening in our brain development that are linked to whether or not we can get into these deep sleep phases that we don't really even know what we can see change in a child once this gets back to normal. We don't know what that kid can be. What can Jacob be like? What could Jacob feel like? If I'm standing in the, in the vegetable counter, and I'm telling all my, my friend that I meet there that Jacob, you know, cries three times a week and always wakes up in the middle of the night. He comes into my bed, and my friend Evelyn says, "That's what, that's what Casey does every night too. That's the new normal. I won't even go looking for a cure for that. 
And if we miss the possibility, so I really think every kid has to be analyzed uniquely, but that we should have a statement. And that's one of the things that I do in these videos is I say, normal for this age group is they fall asleep at seven without any hassle and they wake up at six, happy, content, active. They're not poking you in the nose. They're in the kitchen trying to get their cereal out of the cabinet, okay? They have to have a view of what would be normal in order to arrive there. That's just the beginning. We're just at the beginning. I'm proposing ideas that haven't been fully documented yet because I'm the first one to stumble into them as a group, okay? I'm showing you and the science chemistry behind it, but the idea that we could step into a way to fix all this is just beginning. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. There's so much to it, like you're saying. It's not not simple. I mean, we appreciate the workbook and hopefully, you know, it can help people get to those first steps because, you know, you can hear all this and be like, oh, okay, where do I start? Exactly, that's yeah. real. But the other thing that you started off with your introduction, the current state of affairs in our country is so antagonistic. Yes, it's true that we have a media side to it. But if we picture that there is a optimal mental state for humans where we sleep well and we realize we're patient, that we give people a break, that we're not as, that we're not as aggressive, that when we're at our best, we live, live and let live, that could mean that if we can get to a mental state for all of us, that's not about frontal lobotomy or drugs to drug them, but is about their optimal chemistry, that's worth trying to change throughout our country to have a better life and to treat each other better. Hey there, it's Karin. I hope that you're enjoying the show. And by the way, if you're a mom who wants to learn how to help your child when they're struggling behaviorally or facing challenges in school, get started today by getting my free short video course, Three Steps to Happy Healthy Kids at www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in learning how to have a happy, healthy life with your kids. So head on over to www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video and grab your free gift today. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry, be happy.